Disclaimer, this content is meant for information only and not as a diagnosis or medical treatment for any condition. If you or a loved one needs help, please seek a qualified professional for assistance. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Katie Osta, BSN, RN, IBCLC, and infant feeding specialist. Quench your thirst for knowledge and travel with me across the nation to discover, learn, collaborate, and better serve clients from all over the globe. Let's ride and thrive together. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Today, we are speaking with Melissa Cole, a board-certified lactation consultant and neonatal oral motor assessment professional and clinical herbalist in private practice in Portland, Oregon. Melissa is passionate about providing comprehensive holistic lactation support and improving the level of clinical lactation skills for health professionals. She enjoys teaching, researching, writing about wellness and lactation-related topics. Her bachelor's degree was in maternal child health and lactation, and her master's degree is in therapeutic herbalism. Before pursuing her current path, Melissa's background was in education and cultural arts, which served her well in her work as a lactation consultant and healthcare educator. She loves living, working, and playing in the beautiful Pacific Northwest with her three children. Melissa Cole holds licensure as an IBCLC, an international board-certified lactation consultant, an oral motor professional, and in addition to having her bachelor's of science degree in maternal child health and lactation and her master's in therapeutic herbalism, and has been working as a lactation consultant and clinical herbalist for over two decades, working with women, pediatric, and lactation botanicals. Melissa has a passion for research and has published on her own and in conjunction with other healthcare professionals. I hope you are really excited as I am today to meet with Melissa Cole from Luna Lactation in Portland, Oregon, and let's get going on the podcast. So I'm excited to be in your space today in Portland. This is a beautiful little office. Thank you so much for visiting. Yes, I've been here for over a decade and for people who can't see the space, it's a little bit of a lactation cave and I like to make it nice and cozy and I've been here for about 10 years and it feels like home. Yeah, it's lovely. You've got Thank enough you. space for people to still bring in a stroller or move around. Yeah. Have... I mean, pre-COVID, I would even have classes here. So that feels like a lifetime ago. Yes, when we all used to <laughs> yes. be in rooms together. Other human beings together. Yes, Without that hasn't hats. happened for a while. Yes, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. It's my covered up screen. Mm-hmm. Doesn't get any use anymore. <laughs> oh, yes, that is very yes. sad. I know I do miss having classes in person with people. Yeah, I do too. But there'll be a time again when it's soon safe enough. Yes. Yeah. So tell me, how did you get into research? Because that's not an area most medical practitioners, no matter what your specialty is. A lot of people don't get into research. True. That's a great question. And the research that I've done has been limited to a few areas. I have connection within tethered oral tissues community and have for quite some time now. And so some community providers and I have collaborated for many years at this point. And I've been lucky enough to be invited to work with them on some research projects. And that's sort of how I got my foot in the door. I do have a master's degree in therapeutic herbalism. And my future goal is to do some primary research in that field. So I'm lucky to have some connections that have invited me to be part of research projects. I'd like to spearhead a few on my own in the future, but it is tricky, you know, really, unless you're working in a sort of a paid academic capacity, there's, there's no money in it. And so it really is just this labor of love that you slog through because you want to, you know, add to the body of literature on a certain topic. 
so there's logistical challenges and right fitting it into life when it's not always uh, something that's lucrative that pays the bills right I would imagine that's definitely easier if you're on an academic track exactly you have the support right. if you have a grant exactly yes right because then you can really focus so I would like to do more I actually enjoy uh, academic writing and participating in research projects it's just hard to, to, to fit it into other aspects of work, but it is something I enjoy and look forward to doing more of in the future. See, I'm, I'm impressed and in awe because that is not something I would say at all. I don't think I would enjoy academic writing and studies and yeah. proposals and all of that. That's a little bit of my inner nerd coming out, but I actually do <laughs> like amazing. reading and writing academic work. But I think that there's so many aspects uh, that do need more evidence, uh, for lack of a better word, put out, published. And it's very hard to do when it has to do with anything infant or lactation related, right? To get ethical IRB approval to study certain topics in a high level way is really challenging. Very. Right? Because we've got the youngest, most vulnerable populations. Exactly. So of course, having a study on them is going to be really tough because you're withholding something that you have Exactly. You have some evidence already that is going to be beneficial, which is why you're doing the study, right? To get more evidence, but to withhold that from a group is, that's kind of I mean, that's why we really do have a variety of study designs. There's lots of different ways we can use study methodology to answer different questions. Not everything has to come in the form of a randomized controlled trial. And so kind of opening up to other forms of methodology, I think, is something we need to look at. A lot of people are like, well, there's not a study for this or that, but yet we do have sort of a hierarchy of evidence that we have to build on. One area that I'm looking at moving forward is sort of the topic of aftercare post-phrenectomy. And that's the wild, wild west. And everybody has their own thoughts and ideas of what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And then there's, of course, the group of people say, well, there's no evidence. And so thinking about that as a topic of, well, what study design would fit that question and the answers that we need in an ethical way and be able to get meaningful data uh, is something that really interests me. So that's something maybe on the horizon that I'd like to see pursued a little bit more. That would be so beneficial because I know that for me, particularly when I see clients right now, I'm seeing them all virtually. So I'm seeing clients from all over. And that means that I don't have a consistent provider that I'm always referring to, correct? So sometimes I'm asking other lactation consultants who's great in your area and we're researching and finding support for them, but I don't consistently know what their aftercare is going to be. So a lot of times I have to prep them to what I think an appointment might be like, Mm -hmm. and then they come back and they tell me how it went. And then we discuss what the provider said with the aftercare. But there's such variation, such variation, right? I mean, there's providers out there who say absolutely no aftercare and there's providers who are middle of the road who are like, we're doing presses in the mouth with, you know, one second hold kind of thing. And then there's still some providers out there doing what I was hearing more, you know, three or five years ago, Mm -hmm. where we're doing the rolling pin Mm -hmm. back and forth Mm -hmm. for a minute and yeah. yeah, so there's still yeah. some there's, quite there's wide variation. There's such variation. And it, like I said, I really do think it's like the wild, wild west. Everybody thinks their way is the right way. And mm-hmm. and yet we see the flip side working with families where it's not just a wound. There's a baby attached to the wound that has various levels of the sensory experience they're going through and their oral somatosensory awareness of how this experience now shapes their 
oral experiences as a whole. So I think there's so many layers for us to be thinking through in, yes, we want a, a wound to heal well, but we also don't want a dysregulated infant or parent. And there's so many layers to think about when it comes to aftercare. It's not just the wound. Right. So you've got to think about oral aversion. Yeah, there's many layers. So, so that is yeah. an area that I'd like to see a little bit more work around. And I think it's starting out that clinical layer where people have their clinical experience of, you know, tracking outcomes, seeing through the years, what maybe reduces repeat uh, procedure rates and building on that. However, that's just one part of the puzzle. And we have to be kind of continuing to explore and, and ask questions, track outcomes, and being willing to, to pivot and be open and being willing to shift our own practice style when needed is a really vital part of growing as a practitioner. Right. I think it's definitely, I'm thrilled that you're involved in it because I think it's definitely needed that lactation is involved in that because yes, the medical providers like the pediatric dentists and the ENTs and pediatricians who are doing the release need to see too and need to know the aftercare. But a lot of times they're not seeing them very much afterwards. At most, many of them are only seeing them once. Some occasionally I've heard of some seeing them twice, but it's pretty rare. And since COVID more often than not, I've heard of just sending pictures or photos and or video. And so they're not getting seen. Whereas I'm seeing them frequently once a week. Yeah, absolutely. And so we need to be more involved in that discussion of aftercare Mm -hmm. because we are the ones seeing the results. Yeah. I do appreciate in my community and probably in other communities, the treating providers that really do require the infant, the family to have some sort of a team, whether it's their LC, you know, maybe there's SLP, OT, you know, Mm -hmm. there are other people involved, but it's not just that the family can self-refer to treatment, then get treatment and then good luck with that. But that the provider is really requiring a team for, for pre and post follow-up so that we don't like lose this family through the cracks. So that, that type of a practice, I do really appreciate where they, I don't want to say mandate, but they really require that the the family be working with other people. Well, I think they value and they see the value in the team and they know that that child's going to get better outcomes. Yeah. I mean, even looking at it as a purely selfish side, their practice is going to, you know, get better reviews or better publicity from families mm-hmm. when things go well. Right. Nobody wants the, somebody out there saying, well, I had a release done by this doctor it and it work. went horribly. Right. Now, nobody else tells the whole story either. Maybe they did have that release with no care pre and post. And it's like, well, of course it didn't go well. So I think everyone's starting to see that we need more of a team approach. And we need the team approach for for a few reasons, not just to, to lose families after the procedure. But I do think that there's value in making sure the baby or child is ready that they're in a physical, emotional place to be treated, that other variables and a really good differential diagnosis has been performed, that is it just the frenula that needs release or are there other co-founding variables that are really impacting the feed that need to be addressed before, during, or after as well? So I think the outcomes where we see those horror stories in Facebook groups where, oh, my baby had three releases and it was horrible and nothing got better. To me, those stories are often just a testimony that they weren't, they didn't have that circle of care where there was really good assessment, differential diagnosis, proper timed treatment, and then supportive aftercare. 
And my heart goes out to families who have really gone through a traumatic, it is traumatic, gone through a traumatic experience um, only for not to have quote unquote worked. And a lot of times those families are self-referring from Facebook because somebody else said, well, I had these problems and this was the answer. And they say, well, I have these problems too. And the unfortunate thing is they're getting to that point because they're not being hurt. Absolutely. Somebody is missing. Somehow is getting missed, whether it was lactation care in the hospital, whether it was a pediatrician, whether it Mm -hmm. was, you know, an NP, whoever is seeing them somehow that oral exam and Mm -hmm. everything is getting missed and they are having problems and struggling for it. And I I don't know how many clients I've had that have come and said to me, you know, this isn't working, but I ask the pediatrician and they say it's doing fine, especially the ones where the weight is fine. Yeah. Right. They'll say pediatrician says the baby's gaining fine, but you know, I've had mastitis three times in a month or I, I keep getting plugged ducts or my nipples are raw or all these other problems. Yeah. And I'm sure people listening into this podcast, we're preaching to the choir in some aspect, but you know, it is really devastating to see cases that have gone on for months and months, poorly managed, you know, and then ultimately the kids on a feeding tube or something unnecessarily. But we really can see that prompt, efficient care really early on makes such a difference. And it is sad when that's not necessarily the family's experience. It does. Prompt care makes a huge difference. In my, in my dream world of, of healthcare later, I would love to see, you know, a a child go to the pediatrician. And if they're you know, under a certain age, and especially, you know, if the mom's breastfeeding, even if not, because we could do a lot of the education piece on other infant feeding, but they go in, they have their pediatrician, two month checkup, the pediatrician leaves the room, the lactation consultant comes in and says, Hey, how are things going? Here's what's coming next. Let's talk about the next stage. Let's see what's happening. You know, I just that circle of care for for all ages and stages. You know, I think it's really important to realize that lactation care doesn't need to be just problematic care. Right. Preventative care. Preventative care. Yes. I've recently started accepting more insurance. And that's one of the things that I love is that when we know we have six visits covered or whatever it is, it's like, oh, well, let's meet and go over just some, now that everything's okay, let's just go over some preventative care. Yeah. Except, you know, having accessible care is so important. So that's great to hear you've been able to take on more. Yeah, it is really nice because I have, and I'm, I'm finding I have a lot of clients who have other things going on. They're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do with sleep and breastfeeding. I don't know how to introduce solid foods. I'm going back to work and now I'm worried about my supply, you know, all of those types of things. Or I'm finding a lot of moms that are just isolated during COVID Absolutely, and they don't, they don't know what's normal, right? They think, well, my my one month old is still waking at night. What's wrong with this baby? And I'm like, well, let's talk about what's normal. Absolutely. I definitely think that what we're seeing in COVID is that lack of sort of peer-to-peer support that used to fill some of the gaps where there were maybe parent-parent groups or other times where parents could see sort of normal infant interactions a little bit in the community. And I also see, gosh, I want to throw a rough number, like 85% of the parents that I'm working with, I see some level of postpartum mood disorders, anxiety, depression, and, and then our circle of therapists are pretty tapped out because so many people are needing care. So it's sort of multi-layered where we have these feeding challenges, but now we're adding on postpartum or perinatal mood concerns. And we have this perfect storm of families really suffering and, and silence. And so I do think that 
the role of a lactation consultant is not just, you know, fix a latch, right? We have so many layers that we're looking at and screening and really trying to help families get the resources they need around a variety of topics. Yeah, I actually just said to my husband this morning, sometimes I feel like I need to get a counseling degree. I said, (laughs) I just, I don't want to be a counselor. I'm not trying to take the place of a mental health provider, but I do feel like I want to be able to help because I I can't always guide them to someone. Like you said, there's just nobody available sometimes. And I am guiding and I am always referring. And then in some areas I have providers I can refer to in other areas. It's harder. They're impacted too much. Yeah. But there's also so few that are experienced and comfortable with perinatal mood. Yeah, I definitely am always referring to Postpartum Support International. Locally, we have an organization called Baby Blues Connection. So I often think there's some national or more regional groups that they're not going to take the place of like a personal one-to-one therapist, but it can be a stepping stone for a family to maybe read an article, connect with a virtual group, or have a warm line to call when the day is really tough. So it might not be a perfect option, but I do try to connect them right. with, you know, regional or national options when they're just having a really hard time. Well, and I hear from clients too. I've been getting quite a few lately where this child that they're working with now is doing better mm-hmm. and they're realizing they have trauma from their first child Absolutely. where things didn't go well. Yeah. And we're delving into that. And I'm like, well, how yeah. do you feel? You know, and it's, yeah. they're they're realizing yeah. that, that it was a traumatic Absolutely. eating experience and they didn't quite realize how traumatic right. until they had a new yes. experience. Yeah, And I, sometimes all they do need is that warm line, that postpartum mm-hmm. support. I mean, I love when I can refer to an area, depending upon where the client is, that we've got good Absolutely. postpartum support groups. And, you yeah. know, especially when they're, I love the community supported postpartum plan. Mm-hmm. We used to have that in my area where it was run by a great leader and it was a very nice community support and should have different speakers in every week. And, you know, mm-hmm. having some sort of facilitated group can yes. also be really beneficial Absolutely. versus just saying, Hey, go on and Facebook and talk to other moms. True. I do think the one benefit with many things being virtual now is that even if you're not geographically in a location, there are some virtual support groups that you probably could get connected into. So that would be, you know, something for a lactation consultant that's working with population that really does need those resources to figure out, okay, what are maybe some groups or support options? They might not be local, but they have some virtual care going on. And I do a lot of prenatal consulting work as well. And people that have had a hard time maybe decide, hey, I want to have a game plan before baby number two or three or whatever number arrives. And I think that oftentimes, you know, we're talking through, well, what can we do to, to physically prep, you know, prior to delivery, after delivery, but also the emotional component absolutely comes up. And, and many people can really identify it as this PTSD-like experience. Definitely. And when they can label it and really identify <clears throat> that this was traumatic, they often do want to go through some work to process that before the next baby arrives, or at least just being mindful that this was trauma and, you know, labeling it as so. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I've seen I've seen that quite a bit lately where clients are realizing how traumatic things mm-hmm. have been mm-hmm. and not trusting the new environment yeah, either. Absolutely. Right. Things are going different this time. And and I have a couple of clients right now where we're just doing occasional check-ins because they keep waiting for that shoe to drop. Yeah. They're like, when is it all going to change? This is too good to be true. Last time right. it was horrible. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes even when things are going well, the confidence piece is the mm-hmm. last piece to fall right. into place. Because Absolutely. One, that's the first piece to go awry when a, yeah. when a provider says to a mom, sometimes we, we don't realize how impactful our words can be. And when a medical provider says to a mom, you know, your, 
your breast milk isn't enough, mm-hmm. your child isn't gaining fast enough or something you need to switch to formula. They don't always think about how impactful that can be to a mom that now she's doubting herself and now right. her confidence is gone. Yeah. Right. And that can be, can be really hard. Mm-hmm. It can be very devastating for the mom to get yeah. over. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we do play a special role in that we can really be mm-hmm. present. Often we have a little more time than another provider does right. with a family and the value of our therapeutic presence is not to be underestimated. I think a lot of times lactation consultants are like, well, I, I better fix this problem in one session or I'm not mm-hmm. good enough. Or some of that mental talk can kind of creep in and just realizing sometimes just being present and being able to be a sounding board and really hear what a family has been through and what their goals are. Even that alone is so valuable. Right. Oddly enough, I think I've learned that piece more through my virtual visits lately. (laughs) It's like they just need someone to be there, whether it's COVID keeping them from being out with people or distance. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of my virtual clients now are not from my previous geographical area. They're from all over, but it's they might not have an IBCLC in their area. They might not be able to reach somebody, right? Or they might not live yeah. Within an hour or two. And most LCs don't want to travel two or three hours yeah. to a client, right? Yeah, there's so. significant value in the virtual work. And I think that it is something I was doing virtual work even pre-COVID. Um, certainly it's increased and I, I do both now in person and, and virtual. But I think that the virtual care is here to stay because I, I think too. that A, we can accomplish a lot, probably a lot more than we actually realize. And I think for families, it is liberating to be able to get care when you need it and not always have to go to an appointment or, you know, Mm -hmm. so I think that it's here to stay. I think one of the things that's nice is I still get that glimpse in their world like Mm -hmm. I would at a home visit. But for me, home visits weren't always practical. Mm -hmm. You know, it was they were too spread out in the wide county and all of that. And if you don't want to spend all day driving and you only see two clients that way, right? Exactly. So with these virtual visits, I can still get a glimpse and sometimes I'll see something that maybe they haven't brought up. Like I'll Mm -hmm. see the snoo and I'll say, oh, you guys have a snoo. Why don't you tell me about how you use that, right? Or I might see, you know, a formula set up that, you know, and watch them do it and realize nobody's taught them how to measure formula. Right. No one's taught them how to actually mix. Yeah. Things like that. And being in that environment, I can get a little Mm -hmm. glimpse and see in their world and see how I can be beneficial. Whereas I don't have that when I see clients, when I was seeing clients in my office. Got it. Right. So that piece is nice too. You still get that glimpse into what their, definitely what their life is like. Yes. I agree with that. So with all of your history with herbs, tell me what does an MS in herbal how is that? Yeah. Okay. Where did you go? And so what, what is that my, my degree was from Maryland University of Integrative Health. It was okay. a wonderful program. And they actually have a longstanding history of really top-notch holistic health programs. Love it. And I have to say, I've been interested in botanical medicine even longer than lactation. Like it probably does go back to my childhood and having an interest in nature and the wild and my own family using some herbal medicine at certain times, not always. Um, But I think the roots kind of go deeper than my interest in lactation. And my own personal experience was being a migraine sufferer as a teen. And probably by the time I was about 18, 19, recognizing 
nothing was working. The medications weren't working. How many trips to the doctor, the neurologist, nothing really worked. And when I started to, and this is at a young age, right? 18, 19 is quite young to be taking charge of your health. But I realized I needed to change my diet, you know, get off certain uh, synthetic hormones. Um, and then really, that's when I really went kind of full bore with herbal support. And while I occasionally will have a migraine, it really was pivotal for me to to know my body better and really get more interested in herbs from a more clinical standpoint. And that kind of chapter in life was set aside and, you know, went on to do other things. But by the time I got back into health sciences and and lactation, it really dovetailed with my love of botanical medicine. So I always found that I was sort of combining my love and knowledge of herbs with care and sharing information with families. Um, and then I went on to more formally study. And through the years, I've had you know, a variety of mentors and, and uh, study opportunities. And it is just like lactation in that it is a lifetime study. You know, it's not like I feel like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> I've graduated. It's one of those things that, you know, just the learning never stops and you can go as deep as you want. And so I'm very interested in not only the science, but the art and the ethnobotanical and cultural practices around plant medicine. Someone recently posted on Facebook about evidence-based practice being a very Western construct in that we tend to not value something that is not officially researched and published. And yet we have such a rich heritage and there's so many healing traditions around the world. And 80% of the global population still uses plant medicine as a form of primary care. And yet we tend to really undervalue it. Oh, isn't that cute? That's so quaint. When really there is an art and a science behind so many botanical practices. And so in the past year, especially with COVID, you know, having to pivot and kind of work and reach people differently. I did put out a comprehensive herbal program, herbal support during lactation in the postpartum period. That is a virtual learning opportunity. It's about 11 modules and people can work through it in their own time. Um, because I really wanted to bring that high level information to other lactation consultants who were always asking me, well, what about this? What about that? Is this safe? Is that safe? And I wanted to give them the tools of looking up you know, herb drug interactions, looking up, you know, different contraindications, things that they might not find in a typical pharmaceutical reference. Right. I mean, we have things like hail and lactate and we can easily look up pharmaceuticals, but the only the mainstream thing. Yes. Right. Or if you look up an herb, it'll be like, oh, that's so dangerous. Don't take it. (laughs) And actually that's not what the herbal evidence points to. So I have an herbal database that is much like a hail application where you can look up and you can see, gosh, if somebody wants to take this, is this an option? Is it safe? Is it contraindicated for maybe a medication they might be on? And so they can use it as a tool that is a little bit more herb specific and it's not coming from that pharmaceutical background. And I think it's not even where, you know, lactation consultants need this information first and foremost. Many times clients are coming to us asking, what about this? What about that? And so we're stuck saying, I don't know. And so we really need good tools to turn to and say, well, here's the information I found so that we can give families enough information to make an informed choice. Right. Especially when it's coming to things like I want to increase my supply. That's Mm -hmm. probably my number one when I get herbs, right? 
Yes. Is I want to increase my supply. Right. So what do I take? Absolutely. Or the other one that I get lately is mastitis. I've had a lot of mastitis or plug ducts. What yeah. herbs do I take to help with that? Right. So those are the ones that clients are coming to me yeah. asking for. And I think um, my soapbox around that is that obviously we're doing our awesome lactation management, right? We're optimizing, we're, we're trying to figure out what's happening on the baby side, the parent side, so we can uncover sort of the root cause of their right. issues. And from there, you know, a lot of times we think, well, just take herbs X, Y, and Z and you'll be fine. But we really want to be skillful in understanding herbs, just like other medicines are very individualized. So everyone's body needs something different, whether we're talking about hormone levels, stress levels, inflammation, you know, what, what, whatever the root issue that they're dealing with is, there's going to be a personalized botanical approach and not a cookie cutter approach. So. Right. And that, that can be a little challenging. Right. And I think that it's not necessarily that everyone needs to be a specialist in this, right? I don't think that every lactation consultant needs a master's degree in therapeutic herbalism, but having the tools to turn to being able to say, all right, here's my colleague, I can bounce some ideas off her or boy, here's this, you know, book or this database that's useful, or here's some other resources. None of us are experts in everything, but it's knowing what tools we can access and who we can turn to when we need maybe a little bit deeper support. Well, the smartest person in the room is the person who's surrounded themselves with other smart people, ah, nice. right? I mean, yeah, really, absolutely. because I can't know everything. Right. I can't be an expert in no. tethered tissues and herbs yeah. and inducing lactation yeah. and multiples and, 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 yeah. right? I mean, you just can't. So yeah. sometimes it's the right thing to refer, yeah. right? When something is really out of your scope yes. and to collaborate and to yeah. try to learn from it. But other times we just need to have, like you created that database mm-hmm. to have other things we can pull from. Right. I don't need to be a pharmacist. No. I have resources, right? So that's when our resources come in. And I think it's absolutely amazing that you've made something like that. I'm talking about good use of COVID time. I guess you weren't (laughs) just learning how to knit. Well, and you know, I don't love living my life online. So it was a big change to get a lot of the learning materials that I would used to do like right here in this office or, or go to other locations and teach and, right. and speak and connect and, and sort of having to, to transition. And what I find that I do think people kind of get exhausted from online learning nowadays. Like, let's be honest, Zoom fatigue it's, happens. it's yeah. hard to be online constantly, but on the flip side, it does enable accessibility, right? I have had people from Brazil, from, you know, different countries, um, Europe and other areas be able to access material without the hardship of having to travel somewhere. Right. So I do think that having information virtually available is, you know, sort of a blessing in disguise where it's not the same as in-person connection, but at least you can, you know, ensure that anyone anywhere around the world that wants this information can access it. Right. And I think it's a very interesting thing that most of our medicine started out as plant-based, right? 75% of our pharmaceuticals. We, if it's packaged up and sold at Walgreens, it means more and it's more valuable and, you know, yeah, definitely going to work compared to taking something that's herbal. And yet you ever read those information packets on those oh, things? I, know. It's I mean, so scary. God forbid you read one on like Tylenol. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, yes. what we thought was pretty benign. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not. And exactly. it's, it's important for us to 
Yeah. I think it's, I think people need to really right. think about that. that everything it, we do is pros and cons. Absolutely. And really stepping back and, and recognizing how much industry influence there is on oh, our selection of what we put in our bodies. You know, herbs are interesting. There's sort of this dichotomy where, oh, herbs don't work, but they're so dangerous. Don't take them. <laughs> we have this like flip idea around them. And I think it's like anything to respect and honor. They do have significant pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic actions in the body where they really can impact change and physiological action, but they should be respected just because something's natural. Doesn't mean it's safe. Right. Arsic's uh, natural. I wouldn't no, that. No, thank you. But I really do think this is a time where people's thought process is shifting around what is medicine. And I think that's exciting, especially when we're really thinking about the untapped resources in terms of how we can nourish ourselves. And that really also translates to lactation and postpartum period. So I'm excited to see more people are interested in the topic, but I'm also wanting people to know it should still be approached in a respectable manner and not just a one size fits all approach. Right. And I think that, you know, partly you're in a very nature focused area Mm -hmm. here in Portland, right? Portland people are kind of looking for that, but also I think lactation is a time in a woman's life when they tend to be thinking about Mm -hmm. these things. I mean, it's, it's when you stop, you know, you start thinking, Oh, what is that hair dye I'm putting in pregnant? Is that safe? Right. What about these products I'm using? What about this food? And you start looking at things through a different lens as as a parent. I do fully agree. I think pregnancy and the postpartum period is a time people are wanting and they're more willing to kind of change lifestyle or habits. And they usually come at it from this altruistic place of wanting to do best for their developing baby. And they often are starting to look at some natural options. So I do think that we have an important role to play in that circle of care and helping them get enough information to make informed choices when it comes to, to products they might be interested in exploring. Right. I think any, any client going through that time period is definitely making changes, right? I mean, it's a time when you evaluate everything in your life, physically, emotionally, mentally, your, your physical space, everything, right? right? It's just a a time of reflection and it's a great time to make changes and to think about how it's going to affect. Yes. But one of the things I find is when I talk to people about anything natural, at least in my own personal life, like, for example, if I were to say to my husband, well, you know, years ago, I said, well, we're going to switch off this, you know, mainstream hand wash and we're going to use this natural one. And I even got these ones where it's, you know, the little tab and it comes and then I add the water Mm -hmm. to it and everything else. And I'm like, look at how much resources we're saving. And he's like, well, better work has to work better than the other one or we won't want it. And I find it interesting. Sometimes people hold that standard really high for anything natural. You know, if you're going to take Arnica for a bruise or something, they're like, well, it better help my pain even better. Or I'm going to switch back to Advil. And I'm like, can't it be as good as, Yeah, but they have these high expectations. We have to meet people where they're at, you know, we're all in different places in our life and, and our wellness journey. So I definitely meet people where they're at and, you know, the first thing I usually tell people when they're in my office, I really, I have no agenda for you or your baby. Just what are your goals? What do you want to work on today? And you also get to kind of see what their interests are. And if it's a topic they want to talk about, great. And if not, I definitely don't bombard them with it. But I think with those choices and right, comparing, you know, is it going to be as good as this other product? I think we definitely have to meet people where they're at. 
thing, you know. I guess I'm too old and too tired to want to try to convince everybody <laughs> to change their ways. But I think that there, there's definitely that mindset, right? That better work just as good as XYZ. And with Galactagogs, for example, I mean, we really don't have many very, very Very, few, especially in the United States, very few options. And what we do have is limited and there are definitely side effects and they only really work on prolactin levels. So when it comes to galactagogues, you know, of course, people are looking at other options because we have so few pharmaceutical options. I mean, practically nothing. If you're you're strictly pharmaceutical, Domperidone's not even prescribed in the U.S. Yep, and, and whether or not they can get it through Canada yeah. is not getting it through their provider. Reglan has nasty side effects. Yeah, Reglan <laughs> is pretty nasty yeah. stuff. And they're only going to work on certain aspects of milk supply. Right. Right. So, so I do think that when a parent is really looking for lactogenic options, they're working to support whatever postpartum issue they're working on. I think Western medicine lets them down, right? There's just not a lot that's an option. Absolutely. Um, so. There's not a lot of support in that. So when you meet a client and you're working on low milk supply, are there in your mind, do you have, you know, these are the ones I usually use, but it depends upon the client and what's going on or how do you approach it? Absolutely. So we're always looking at the basics, right? Why do we think supply is low, right? We're triaging those basics and, you know, making sure we're optimizing infant function, milk removal, all of those other aspects of uh, milk supply. And then we're really looking at what are some of the other issues? Are there endocrine issues at play? Do we have high levels of stress? Did maybe milk removal get off to a slower start and now we need to kind of ramp it up? Are we seeing aspects of breast hypoplasia? You know, so in my mind, I'm always sort of thinking of, all right, and and I'll, I'll physically write it down on my notepad of, okay, maybe this herb, maybe that herb. And then at the end of the visit or later on, I will do my due diligence to really figure out what I think would best support this person's needs and make a few recommendations for them to decide whether or not they want to try that or not. So it's always an individualized approach and what I think their body needs the most support around. Yeah. You might be surprised. Sometimes I'm suggesting more mood supportive herbs or stress reduction herbs or things that you might not think about as a galactagogue, but that's what they need the most in the moment. Right. And especially, I mean, the the stress is one of those hard ones. It's like a chicken egg kind of thing. It's like, did the stress come first or did the lack of milk supply get fed by stress? Either way, the cortisol's there and now we have to deal with the stress. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So stress is a big one and work with a lot of that. We see a lot of, you know, parents flying solo, right? And whether it's because of COVID safety precautions, you know, there's just... There's no village whatsoever and people are not meant to do this alone. So we see a lot of significant fatigue, significant exhaustion. And, you know, maybe this is even coming off of severe anemia or hemorrhage or, you know, whatever they went through with delivery where they're already coming at it from a depleted source. And I think we have this, you know, ridiculous idea. Well, if they try hard enough, they can lactate. (laughs) And that's just simply not true. I do think that nourishment and rest and really supporting our micro macronutrients and our emotional well-being really does factor into healthy lactation, as well as just overall endocrine function and and, and breast chest development through the lifespan. Um, So there are a lot of variables that we have to be 
cautiously screening for when we're working with a new family and at the same time, not overwhelming them, right? So in the back of my mind, I'm doing all the screening, but it's not like I'm blurting out, oh, this is wrong. That's wrong. You know, I'm, I'm being mindful and I'm trying to you know, maintain that therapeutic presence for them while in my mind, I'm sort of going through what I think they could use support with. And then at the end, making a little list for them of, of things to explore. Right. And are you generally recommending herbs individually, correct? Not like combinations or not not necessarily. I I don't mean that you wouldn't recommend two or three. I mean, you don't, do you generally recommend someone buy a combined thing? Uh, It really varies, right? Somebody that just needs a little boost and most Mm -hmm. things are going well, they just maybe want a couple extra ounces a day. You know, they often do well with some of the prepackaged formulations on the market and, you know, proper dosing. People that have maybe more unique circumstances or they really need specific things targeted, they might do better doing a little bit more of a custom formulation. So that's why it's, it, it is good for people to know about what what's in their community. Do you have an herbalist? Do you have a place that can do custom formulations? Herbalists like myself and other people do the work where we can you know, creatively think about doing combos that maybe don't exist on the market. So some people do great with some of the -the over-the-counter, high-quality blends that are out there. And then some people need some more targeted care. Okay. Yeah. So just, and again, depends upon the clients and depends upon having individualized care. I sound like a broken record, but yes, (laughs) that's the take-home message. I think it's a good thing that it depends upon your situation, that there isn't a standard, you know, take two of these and call me in the morning. Exactly. Right? Because everyone has different different health and everything mm-hmm. else at that moment or okay. is any part of your herbal background everything looked at gut health and all of that or yes I know I kind of joke that half my clientele are you know oral functional issues and the rest of the ha- are digestive health issues right? I mean of it's course the there's other. definitely more of a spectrum but I just see such a significant amount of digestive health issues for, for the parent and the child of course mm-hmm. and I feel that it's so under recognized in their conventional care where either it's quote unquote normal, like it's normal for your baby to not poop for three weeks or on the flip side, oh gosh, now your baby needs three medication. So I see that spectrum of normal to now some severe medical problem. But I think that we are in a unique role to see the glimpses of early red flags and be able to support a family that that's interested in that support in recognizing what are norms for infant stooling patterns and digestive health. And when we're seeing, I think we see an epidemic of gut health issues in babies now. I was listening to something on NPR. It said 60 plus percent of Americans have some sort of IBS, IBD issues, which Mm -hmm. to me just says, you know, that's sort of a generic answer for gut health problems. Unhappy gut. But we see that echoed in their babies and it's, it's a huge issue. And I think it goes under recognized. Um, But when we see babies early on, right, if we're seeing funky bowel movement patterns, we're seeing, you know, pre-eczema and rashes, and we're seeing quote-unquote colicky babies and spitty-uppy babies, I think we can play a role in kind of helping them decide what they want to look at or address or what changes they may want to implement or not, depending on the severity of the issue and where their mindset is around the problem. I think it's important to differentiate between common and normal. Totally. Because that's something I hear a lot. You know, well, 
my baby snores, but that's really normal. And yeah. I'm like, oh, actually, yeah. that's really common. Right. <laughs> but it's not our physiological no. norm to exactly. snore. That's a sign of a of a compressed airway that we're not getting enough airflow through yeah. something, you know, it's, or um, bruxism, you know, grinding your teeth at night or if a newborn, an exclusive breastfeeding newborn, not stooling for 14 days. I'm like, I, I and, and it's funny common. because I but love when people cherry pick the evidence they want to use or not use. I mean, there's no evidence around delayed stooling to that extent being normal. <laughs> so I think it's pretty funny when people are like, well, where's the evidence of, you know, this or that, but then they think other things are fine to just right. talk about without evidence. I mean, that's a fairly common one. Yeah. And I've worked yeah. in Washington and California with different pediatricians yeah. and different clients. Yeah. And that's one that I hear yeah. Very and commonly. yet it's just not the physiological norm. You right. can look at all the scientific evidence pointing to regular newborn stooling being the human physiological norm. Right. So, I mean, yeah. in general, I tell my clients too, I mean, humans need to have bowel movement every day. Yeah. We feel better when we do. And I ask them, how do you feel if you go a week yeah. without pooping? Yeah. Generally not good. And I ask them also, I said, so taking the comment aside that it's quote unquote normal, how does your baby act? Right. How's your baby feel? How do you think your baby's feeling? What do you think's going on with them? And they're like, well, they're pulling up their legs and scrunching their face and they're crying a lot. They don't want to be on their tummy and they're not sleeping and and they're spitting up now. Right. And it just seems like they And often the parents know they have this instinct that this isn't quite right. And that they're not always supported in in that feeling. So I do think that we're often on those front lines of sort of screening for certain concerns and helping them find types of care that maybe resonate with them or things they want to try that they haven't explored. But, you know, doing this work for a long time and being able to see families with subsequent children through the years, you know, often see, you know, the kid that was the non-pooping baby is now the non-pooping toddler. And so it goes. And so really being able to identify things early on and and have that early impact, I think is so beneficial. Yes. I mean, I had a client recently say, wow, you know, this, this tongue tie stuff, it's, it's a lot of work. We got to work on this exercises for like four weeks. And I was like, yes, yes, I know. We're going to make a plan. We're going to do all this stuff. And we talk it through. And then I'm thinking, but if we don't, you know, I mean, at, at 10 or at yeah. 20, these things have such bigger impacts, just Four like weeks that. Is a drop in the bucket. Right? Yeah. I mean, you talk to a myofunctional therapist and they're like, oh yeah, I'll see your team for the next two years. Right. Right. I'm like, it's so different. Yeah. And we do have that, you know, I tell parents sometimes too, this baby is like, Play-Doh baby or yes. silly putty baby, right? Like yeah. they're so much more malleable mm-hmm. and easily adjusted right now, mm-hmm. whether it's physiological yeah. body, you know, structural yeah. issues or it's gut health mm-hmm. or it's weight. Like they need little tweaks. Exactly. You get to my age and your yeah. body is pretty set in its way. It takes a lot more than four weeks to make change. <laughs> it takes a while and yeah. it takes a lot more than a tiny nudge, yeah. right? Babies are at that. We're, we're blessed yeah. in to work with a human that's so new. Yes. Yeah. That is so receptive to change too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I've seen so many babies where it's like you teach them mm-hmm. something as simple as a better latch and yeah. you teach them on better positioning and they can get it down like that. Exactly. Right? Because yeah. they're so receptive to learning mm-hmm. and change. Yeah. But that does not necessarily. It's their full occupate, full-time occupation to be learning and developing. So. Right. Yeah. But unfortunately, that doesn't always continue through the. Yeah. through the lifespan quite as easily. Not that we don't want to learn. Right. It just is it's hard. learning and changing is, is definitely is a more of a yeah. more entrenched process. Yeah. But I do think going back to working with people in the, the pregnancy and, and perinatal postpartum period, the parent themselves are, are willing and wanting to, 
to change for the child's benefit. So it's a, this time frame where I think we have this unique opportunity to actually make an impact, right? If we're telling a parent outside of the perineal period, you know, make these lifestyle changes, these dietary changes, do this, do that, it's going to be a lot harder to make changes Definitely. for our own well-being. But when there's a baby involved, a lot of times parents are like, absolutely, I'll do anything. And so we really can be there for them to kind of help them explore different care options that might really help whatever issues they're they're working through. Absolutely. It's it's very motivating to do something yeah. for the betterment Absolutely. of somebody else. And especially when that other person is your newborn exactly. child, right? Or your little baby. It's just, it's, yeah, that's, yeah. it's a very easy time to motivate yourself. You're right. Yeah. Whereas making changes for ourself, not so easy. Absolutely. No, it's, it's incredibly hard and it, and it, it doesn't get any easier, but when you do it in the beginning and I I see clients that do something for their child, Mm -hmm. right? Make these dietary or lifestyle changes that they need to make to help with their, whether it's their gut health or their supply or whatever, it's easier to continue changes too and to see and to say, oh, wow, my body feels better better. when I do this or my body is different when I do that. Wow, this is, this is a change. Yeah. And you know, again, going back to that meeting families where they're at, being supportive, you know, not having an agenda other than their own goals. I think it's it's good where we can point out like, well, I'm observing this or I'm seeing that. How do you feel about this or that? But always coming back to supporting their goals and, and being a, a therapeutic presence for them. I feel like that is so much better than being pushy and dogmatic and, you know, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that. But being very supportive and nurturing and how we present information is also this unique aspect of how we can connect with people to foster change. So I think our role as lactation consultants is unique and we get to touch people's lives in so many different ways. Definitely. Definitely. I tell clients that my parenting philosophy is you do what works when it works. If it stops working for your family, let's find a new solution. If it's working, fantastic. And your family is what you design and what you declare it to be. But I have no preference about how someone does something. I mean, I actually jumped for joy a while ago because I had a exclusive formula bottle fed baby coming to me for support. And I was like, so happy that you thought to come to me. That's where we really want to keep you know, challenging the stigma that we have right. some, you know, agenda for only nipples and <laughs> breast milk. I mean, we really want people to know we are about inclusive feeding. We're about many ways of loving and feeding a baby. And I think that's something that I want to see promoted and portrayed more for our Definitely. field. Definitely. I mean, of course, I know the benefits of yeah. breast milk. Of course, I can help a woman latch, but I have no preference of what she's going to do. And if a, if any client comes to me and says, this is my child mm-hmm. and I, I want to feed it with this, I want mm-hmm. to use this yeah. formula and this bottle. And I say, yes. great, yeah. let me help you with that. Absolutely. What do you, what do you need to know? What are your questions today? You know, I think it's wonderful. And I was just so touched because I hadn't had a lot of exclusive formula bottle babies. And she said to me that, you know, she's like, I was a little worried to reach out to a lactation consultant, but somebody told me that you'd be okay with this. Yeah. I said, I'm so glad you're here. Right. I'm so glad you're here because you just need support in what you were choosing to do. Yeah, absolutely. So I hope to see that trend continue. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes cultivated growth as a field. We have to continue to work on being inclusive in our practices and and how we approach infant feeding. 
Well, you know, we're, we are never devaluing the human milk and, and breast and chest feeding, but I think that we do have a long way to go to really have people recognize our approach is inclusive and we want to support families and their goals. Well, I think, and I don't know if it was in my head as a, you know, when I was a new lactation consultant or if it was community from other lactation consultants, I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but there was definitely a feeling of, I was almost measuring my success Mm -hmm. by my client's success. And, and there was, you know, well, I got that client to be able to exclusively breastfeed for a year or whatever. And it, it took me a while to realize I don't know where that voice is coming yeah. from, but it has no place here. Right. My I, success is my success exactly. and not theirs, first of all. Yeah. And really my success yeah. is, is helping them get what right. they want. That, yes. That's really where it's at. Yes. But, and I think that's that next level in, in practice or as a practitioner, when you do recognize that within yourself and how you're supporting people that really are our own personal agenda of how we think something should be going or how a case should be solved or fixed right. um, has no place in caring for families. So I think that is that, that next level when you really kind of go from feeling nervous, maybe I don't know anything, maybe I can't help them to, to feeling like, wow, I really, you know, was present for them. I was there for them. They felt safe. They yes. trusted my care. Um, that's what I want families to walk away from. They felt heard. Yes. They felt heard. We, we yeah. worked on their goals today exactly right so all of that definitely plays a part but it's I think it's still missing in as much as I love the idea of breastfeeding and lactation I want to say to people too I'm just an infant feeding specialist no it's funny that you say that if I'm on an airplane and people like what do you do for work like I do not want to go into a dialogue of what does a lactation I'm like yeah infant feeding specialist it's usually what I I throw out because I'm like I don't necessarily want to get into a conversation with Joe Schmo next to me about what what I do sometimes I'll go there but but sometimes I just choose to to wrap it up into that right well I think infant feeding specialist is really what we do and it's so much more than just you know, I've had people say to me, oh, so you help a mom latch a baby. I'm like, I wish, I wish that was about 5% of my job. You know, I'm like, that's so little of what we do. And we do so much more than that. And, and not just in the emotional support or all these other, you know, prephrenectomy care, holistic care, anything, but also in just the idea that I don't have to work with just exclusive breastfed babies. So little of my practice, honestly, is exclusively breastfed. Most, you know, I'll tell someone all the time because they'll be like, well, you know, I'm supposed to be exclusive breastfeeding or or somebody else's. And I'm like, to be honest, most people do combinations. Yeah. And it's just not the demographic that we're usually going to see waltzing into our practice. Right. right? We're We're not seeing the easies. Exactly. We're often seeing people who need more help. And um, and well, and I'll say to any client, this is most People mm-hmm. are doing some messy combination mm-hmm. of life. Yeah. It is not black or white. Mm-hmm. How you feed your child is just how you feed your child today. Yep. And some days it's bottles and some days it's breast or chest yeah. feeding. And some days it's finger tube and some mm-hmm. days it's a cup. And, you know, what, whatever is working for your family right now, yeah. then go with it. Exactly. Well, that's good. I think conversations like this are really a good way to highlight how we want to support families on different levels and that we do a lot more than just latch babies. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that would be a very easy job and just, you know, kind of sit here and latch baby and then just hang out. It's just a shame. Those babies don't read the book before they're born. <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they could all come out knowing what right. to do, which, yes. you know, I mean, and I do have people say, but aren't we supposed to know what to do? 
Yeah, I think that is an interesting part too, where people often feel that, well, this should be so natural. And yeah, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's easy or instinctive on so many levels. Well, and I tell people too, what's, what is more of where we came from and nature and everything, we weren't doing this by ourselves, right? You would have, before you got to the point where you were breast or chest feeding, you would have seen so many all through your lifespan. And then when it was your turn, you would have had so many around you. Yes. And probably some other lactating aunties to help out. (laughs) Right? Yes. Like you just would have had other people around. Yeah. Other people to reassure you, to give support, to to do everything. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, definitely it's a whole other podcast topic, but just the burden of parenting is in the significant. US and yeah. we started out with parents having these expectations of being a super parent, being able to do it all, you know, feed oh. their baby all by themselves. Back to and work we just start weeks. with these expectations that are just not humanly really. I'm back to work at six weeks that we're just setting people up for feeling like they failed when actually they've been a wonderful human, just not supported. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed when people say, well, you know, at six weeks, I'm going to be back in my pre-pregnancy clothes and back to work and I'm going to go do my workout and I'm going to be, you know, working full time and doing everything. And I'm like, it's, it's not going to be that easy. And unless you have some magic secret that I don't know, it's tough. I said, it takes a lot. It takes you know, support around you, whether that comes in a partner or parents or aunties or best friends or, you know, neighbors, it, it comes in support and that's how we make it through. And in the U S it is dramatically lacking. And I would say ever since COVID it's become dangerously lacking. Dangerously lacking is absolutely accurate. You know, I mean, in, in Northern California, when COVID hit, and I can't speak for all areas, but Northern California, all hospitals stopped mm-hmm. the very minimal yes. classes yeah. that they had, right? I mean, I think yeah. most areas did. So there were no classes. Yeah. There was no, um, many, many of the prenatal visits were done virtually. Right. Yep. They would be brought in just for certain yeah. things. And sometimes they'd be brought in and, and have a tiny yeah. test or something and then leave. Yeah. And there was no education. Yeah. So they were going in very blind yeah. to labor and birth right. and new postpartum hood. Mm-hmm. And they often were not allowed more than maybe one support person if they're lucky. I, I definitely yeah. have seen so many aspects of care fall through the cracks, you know, during COVID. And there's a benefit to virtual care. And then there's also a real risk yeah. to missing significant medical issues. So yeah, I think it's, yeah. I think it's very hard. And it's, um, you know, when you see these clients, and I've seen clients who've gone to, you know, 20 week ultrasounds alone, mm-hmm. and sometimes that doesn't go well. And it's unfortunate that COVID has caused this. And I'm hoping that as things open up, we'll start to get back to norm. And I'd love to see, but I'd love to see even our norm wasn't great well, for supporting families. And if, if, Every single LC or perinatal provider has not been working on their trauma-informed care practice. They need to step up their game and we're really needing these skills more than ever to really see families through a time of trauma for many families, not for everyone, um, and be able to have that level of skill to to get them the care they need when maybe it's been slipping through the cracks. Definitely. Definitely. And it's, and it's so hard because there isn't the support postpartum either. There, there are not any setup, mm-hmm. you know, 
easy, accessible right. government supports for new parents and new families. The, the whole return to work thing is way too soon. And how could they not? I'm never going to tell a family, oh, you need to stay home for six months because that's, first of all, it's not my place. Yeah. Well, it's an impossibility. For and, and for most, it's an yeah, impossibility. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's a very difficult thing mm-hmm. to make these transitions and to go back. And we are seeing clients at a very unique time in their yeah, life. Absolutely. Right. We're seeing them at the, at this like apex of physical change and mental and lack of resources and and wondering how they move forward and trauma and yeah it's it's this huge yeah Yeah, absolutely i do agree with you fully it's a crazy time yes i know but i'm so glad that clients have you in the portland area to come to well portland is unique we have a lot of resources and many types of care and, and specialists so i do feel that portland is a wonderful community and we do have a variety of birth workers and practitioners but still I think that caring for communities locally nationally globally is really vital during this challenging time and I'm really happy you stopped by do you have any other fun travels within Portland you know we're after Portland we're heading up into Washington so we're going to be kind of exploring all the Pacific Northwest from the coast to the forest you're going to see more of this area than I have (laughs) It's, you got to get out there. I know. It's gorgeous. I mean, I know. we lived in Washington for three years yeah. and I lived there with the goal of, I don't know if I'm going to, how long I'm going to live here. So we went everywhere. You know, my that. kids still talk about the day that we went and decided to, we did a ferry day. We rode I three ferries. You know, we went from well, Edmonds over to Kingston and then up yeah. to Port Townsend and, and over in local to ferry. Well, like we just had a fun ferry it. day. Well, hopefully after this sub. Uh, baby boom palooza is over with soon enough uh then i'll get out and adventure a little bit right yeah. now it's raining babies <laughs> a lot of babies in yes. portland i think the covid baby boom is real and then just always summer is baby season summer is baby season. so once we get through this little hump then i hopefully we'll get a few little adventures under my belt yeah, too september is so. usually a pretty busy baby month meantime too. i'll live vicariously through your travels and podcasts i look forward to hear additional topics and, and and people you connect with how fun thank you i'm just trying to get everyone out there listening you know who is out there supporting families yeah. so all of us are supporting families in different ways yeah. you know from the chiropractor to the dentist to the lactation I, I think we're all working with the same population yes there's a lot of overlap yeah. in what we do mm-hmm. and yet we all come with this really unique lens absolutely and so I love learning from yeah. like I love hearing from body workers mm-hmm. what they do and watching them and mm-hmm. learning and I have no interest in becoming a body work practitioner yeah. myself like I love what I do yeah. and I'm not trying to take their place but I learn so much and it yeah. helps because what I learn impacts my practice and I'm able to see and say, Oh, I can see now how you might benefit from a body work. Absolutely. That the more we learn about what other people's role on the team is, then the better we can help families get to the care providers they need to get to. So absolutely. I love collaborating and connecting um, because it does take a team for many of the babies we work with. It does. It's not usually a a one and done kind of thing. No, I mean, most of the time it is a team approach and they need that support. So you know, having having an open mind and being able to find that team wherever you are is just so important. Yes. So thank yeah. you for inviting me. Thank to beautiful you. Office I'm excited to hear about your next adventures and podcasts. And I really appreciate you stopping by. Thank you, Thanks Katie. So much.
When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today and learned something new. If you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, please share.